continuing with 36 to 41 over the page. It's on page 1093 in the Church Bible. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And over the page. Continue at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. It's good to be here again. Um, Last week I championed three things. I championed um, naivety over cynicism. I championed being small like a child and have a child having a childlike perspective. And I uh, championed uh, last Sunday. Um, saying that it's a pity that the Church of England calls it Low Sunday. It's like, don't bother coming. You know, we've done, sun- we've done Easter, now you can stay away until Christmas. <laughs> it's a bit odd, isn't it? The way it feels like. Um, so I'm, I'm now going to champion this Sunday. Champion what? Champion them all. <laughs> Gives you a theme every Sunday without thinking. Um, No, um, in a different way. Um, But today is Resurrection Day. Today is Rainbow Day. When God makes his promises, which he keeps. And today I want to introduce you to a hero of mine. Some of you will have heard of him. Um, His name is... Charles Simeon. Any of you heard of Charles Simeon? No? Yes? One? One person, okay. Well, this is Charles. He was born in 1759. That was a good year because it was the same year that Arthur Guinness started brewing his stout. (laughs) All right. So this is is Charles. He's from a well-to-do family. And um, this this is a picture of Charles Simeon as he went about Cambridge where he spent the majority of his life. I don't know if you can see that, right? Believe it or not, Charles Simeon was the fashion icon of his day. Okay? 
He was one of the first people in this country to have an umbrella. And if you were to go to Cambridge, a wonderful place, and you go to Holy Trinity Church, where he was vicar, and if you're fortunate enough to be there when there's a, a church warden or someone like that around, and they've got the key to the vestry, ask them to open the vestry, go in the vestry. When you go in there, as you go through the door of the vestry, you turn round, and above the door, in a glass case, is Simeon's umbrella. <laughs> Amazing. And there are other things to do with him. Um, uh, Simeon went to Eton, and then he went up to Cambridge, to King's College. Uh, he'd been there a few days. He was organising his room and ordering in his port and his Madeira, as you do, and making sure that his two fine horses were well stabled. And within three days, um, life changed. Because he received an invitation from the provost to a service of Holy Communion three weeks later. Now, Simeon did not come from a, a family background, a, um, a church background, a Christian background. He wasn't a Christian. Uh, he was a bit of a conceited teenage lad. Um, thought a lot of himself. Hence, he wanted to be the uh, Stephen Gerrard of his day. Doesn't look a lot like him, like, but... Uh, um, and he was just unprepared for this invitation. And he was, he was dumbfounded as to why it had an effect on him. It's just a simple invitation to a communion service in the college chapel, King's College, Cambridge Chapel, nine lessons and uh, carols and stuff. Um, and it wasn't so much an invitation as a summons. You have to go. And he says in, uh, in some of his writings that the devil himself was more fit to attend that communion than he was. The devil himself was more fit to attend than he was. And he became extremely anxious about this. Um, and uh, he needed someone to turn to to help him. But there was no one he could turn to. His parents weren't Christians. Right. So um, I will now read you just a part of a page and you'll see the connection between Easter and Simeon because he would champion Easter as well. So Simeon does not record in his somewhat scanty memoirs how the dreaded compulsory communion went. He was at that point far from having achieved any peace of mind and was still engrossed in his amateur theological researches. Fortunately for him, he persevered with a book by Bishop Wilson, and he persevered for another two months, which brought him to Lent and Holy Week. He spent hours trying to reconcile his sense of guilt with the mystery of the sacrifice of Christ as portrayed in the communion service of 1662. He had had no evangelical training to throw light on the subject. There was no one he knew to whom he could turn. The skies seemed dark overhead, and when he looked down, it was only to see his horrific reflection as a sinner beyond hope. In this frame of mind, he suddenly came upon a phrase to the effect that, 
The Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. Like a flash, it came to him, I can transfer all my guilt to another. I will not bear them on my soul a moment longer. Looking back in happy retrospect over the years, he recorded later, Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus, and on the Wednesday of Holy Week began to have a hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April the 4th, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Alleluia, alleluia. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Saviour. Isn't that wonderful? Eh? Isn't that wonderful? I love reading that. You can see I've read this a uh, time or two. I love reading that. He had, he, he, had no, he had no one to turn to, right? He had no theological training. He didn't come from a Christian family. He just had this invitation. And that's what God used. It was unexpected. Who would have thought that an invitation like that would cause something in him to react? And as a, as a result of that, he started reading. He wanted to work it out. And then as he worked it out, he came across this, that he could transfer his guilt to the head of another, as each of us can do. Remembering that repentance is a warm word, not condemnatory. It's a warm invitation, is repentance. It's come on into the kingdom. It's not you dark and rotten sinner. You'll never get into the kingdom. It's come on into the kingdom. And he experienced that on Easter Sunday. And he says elsewhere that that stayed with him for the rest of his life, even though, he says, I was then enabled by his grace to, to set my face towards God. And though I have had much to lament and mourn over, and for which to be confounded before God, yet blessed be his name, I have never turned from him, and he has been with me during the past 56 years. So that experience continued with him. I wonder if ever um, you have had the experience of something coming to you quite um, unexpectedly. Right, when I was a young man, when I was 19, which is about 21 years ago now, something like that, um, when, right, I was at a teacher training college at St. John's, York. Right, training to be a teacher. I loved English literature, still do. Um, and I, I got to a point, I was about 19, and I decided, really, I didn't need God. Because I was going to be a famous novelist. And a poet, to boot. <laughs> right, that was what I was going to be. Famous novelist and a poet. So what, what need of God was there? Right? All I had to find out was, which novel was I going to write? Right? Which would be a world bestseller. So I, I've, I've got this in my mind, and um, I'm travelling home uh, to see my girlfriend, who is now Mrs Thomas. <laughs> um, and the train gets to Staley Bridge, just outside Liverpool. This man gets on the train and sits next to me, and the moment he sat down, I thought, oh, no. Somehow I knew, this man is a Christian. 
and he wants to talk to me, and I am not going to let this man catch my eye. So I stubbornly and determinedly looked out of the window in the opposite direction. And I tried to keep my head, and I thought, it's not far from Staley Bridge to Liverpool Lime Street. You know, I don't have to do this for very long. So let's, let's, let's not let him start talking. But he got me like, you know, there was just a moment, just a moment when I probably looked that way a bit, and he started talking to me, and I, I, was, I was very abrupt, not to say rude, um, and I gave him very clipped, short responses, and he started talking about God, and I thought, oh, here we go. Right, and he, he, he very soon picked up that I was not in a good place with God, and so he said, what's keeping you from God? And I thought, I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> um, and then he said, is it ambition? What about that, eh? Is it ambition? Right on the nail. And I thought, even now, at my, I get goosebumps just telling that story, which I haven't told for ages. Is it ambition? What I want to say to you this morning, I want to bring you, for you personally, but also you as a church, a, a, a sentence I read this week when I was doing my prayer time from Psalm 61. And this is the sentence. You've always taken me seriously, God. That's it. It's about as impressive as an invitation to communion. You've always taken me seriously, God. Did anyone see that television programme, Mind Over Marathon? One or two, yeah. Right, uh, I shan't go into detail, but, but it's about ten people, I think it was. I didn't see the beginning of it. Ten people with mental health problems. Serious mental health problems. And they're sort of encouraged, challenged, you might say, to run the London Marathon. Some of them are runners, some of them have never run. And they, they're invited to start training months and months ago. And in the end, I think seven out of the ten actually do it. Some pull out. But during the programme, Prince William, Kate and Prince Harry come and meet with these ten people because you've probably read or seen that they're getting into mental health issues. So they come and meet with these 10 people with their mental health problems. And there's a part where there's a woman who I think, I didn't get the whole story, I think her husband has died sometime before. She suffered from great depression. She's worried about her son. Is she going to be able to look after him? Is she going to be able to bring him up? And she's telling her story to Prince William. And then, and he is, he listens. And then he, um, he, he, um, she asks him, can, can I ask you something, she says. And basically she asks him, how, you, how, how have you got on since your mum died, Princess Diana? And he says to her that the shock has never gone away. The shock is with him every day. He hasn't got over it. He's got used to it to some degree. And that woman then tells Nick Nolte, who's the presenter, that Prince William has listened to her. 
and has taken her seriously. And it means the world to her. And God is just like Prince William. Your problems, your laments, your difficulties, as Mimi, but Nimi, Nimi was telling us from last week, right, Nimi is not alone, is she? In needing the jar and the problems. And always but always, God has taken you seriously. I'd like you to imagine something, okay? You, you may find it better if you close your eyes, but you don't have to. I'm going to describe a scene. I'm going to paint a scene for you. I'd like you to enter into it, if you would. Okay, this is it. You're, you're out in the countryside on your own. You're having a walk. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing threatening except some dark clouds. You're walking up this hillside, and as you have suspected, there's a drop of rain. And as you turn around, you see these clouds, you think, it's really going to rain heavily. And in the distance, not the far distance, but the short distance, you see a hut. And you think, it's going to come on really heavy, this rain. I'm going to try and get to that hut. And you're right, because the closer you get to the hut, the heavier the rain becomes. And you get to the hut, you wonder what might be in it, a cow or a calf or something, but there's nothing in it. You look through the window, there's nothing in the hut. It's all clean, quite tidy, really. And so you go in out the rain, shake the rain off yourself, and you stand looking out the window uh, to see when the rain's going to go off. And as you look out the window... There's another figure in the rain heading towards the hut. And as you look closely, as the figure gets nearer, you recognise him. And it's Jesus. And it's too late to get... There's no other way out other than the, the door you came through, and he's already at the door. And he comes in, he doesn't know you're there, of course. He comes in, he shakes the rain off himself, and then he sees you. And you look at him, and he looks at you. It's almost like eye to eye. Well, it is eye to eye. And you find it difficult to hold his gaze, and you look away from him, because you immediately begin to think of all the mistakes you've made, of all the errors in your life, of your sin. You begin to think, I'm a failure, I'm hopeless, I'm not as good as other people. I've let so many people down. There's just an endless list of things that you believe uh, is wrong with you. And you and you're really, you know, you're really caught by this, but then... As much as you can't look at him, you're drawn to look at him. And so you lift your head and you look at him. And he's looking at you. And he's not condemning you. And you can't believe it. You're looking into these loving, warm eyes and you realise that he is looking beyond 
the mistakes that you've made and the errors and the broken relationships and the upsets and the depression and the whatever else it is. He's looking beyond that. It's not that he's ignoring those things, but he's looking beyond them. And he's looking at you. He's looking at you. And his eyes are celebrating you. He's taking you absolutely seriously. The whole of your life. Not just the bit that isn't so good, but there's the huge bit that is wonderful. Because you're created in the image of his father. And he's looking at you and you can't take your eyes off him. And you see that when he looks at you, he believes in you. He believes in you. You know it. This man believes in me. He's affirming me. He's confirming me in my goodness, in my potential. This man loves me. And it's just so thrilling and wonderful. And then you just sort of glance over his shoulder and see the rain stopped. And Jesus says, he has somewhere else to go, as you do too. And he leaves, he leaves and goes one way, and you leave, and you go your way. Now that is just an image that has been painted and created. The storm, the field, the hill, the hut, they're all in, in the imagination. What is not created in this instance is a resurrected Jesus who is real and alive and is with you at this very moment and who looks at you now as he did in that hut. And yes, he sees the mistakes and the errors and all of that. He sees that, but he looks beyond that. He can do something about that. He already has on the cross. Now he looks and he's taking you so seriously, more seriously than you have ever taken yourself. And he sees the gifts you have. He sees the that there's hope in you. He sees that there is longing in you and he wants to affirm it in your life. He wants to place his hand upon you and anoint you and bless you ever so richly and he wants to do it at this very moment. So as you left the imaginary hut and you were never the same again, so as you continue in the next second and minute of your life, you are never the same again because the resurrected Christ has met with you this morning, now. So that's you as individuals. Now just a word as we come to an end of this part about you as a church. 
Just as Jesus takes you seriously as individuals, he takes you very seriously as a church. In one sense, that's a lame thing to say, but it's true. Perhaps you need to hear that. Jesus is very serious about St. Stephen's. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves St. Stephen's. Jesus loves his bride. Sorry, gentlemen, to call you brides. But then the ladies have put up with sons of God for a long time. Right. Jesus loves his bride and he loves you. And we heard in the, the Bible passage about the church coming together and, and people receiving the Holy Spirit and many being added to their number. Right. Take to heart, please, as a church, that Jesus confirms you, affirms you, believes in you as a church, you gathered here now, and others who come at other times. He believes in you. He delights in you. He champions you. You, St. Stephen's. This is a good place to be. Joan and I came and went up to the prayer time. And we sat in the prayer time. And what I wanted to pray, and what I eventually did pray was, this is a good place to be. They did ask me, Nimi asked me, what are you preaching on this morning, George? You know, my mind was completely blank. You might say it's been completely blank since I started preaching as well. But I couldn't tell her. I couldn't tell her. But I did want to say this is a good place. Be heartened by this. Jesus championed you as a church. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? So this is Resurrection Day. This is Rainbow Day, the day of promise. That just as with Nimi, meeting her needs this week, he will meet your needs. He will meet your needs. Sometimes he'll do it fairly instantly, and sometimes it takes a while, and we have to wait, but he will do it. And he will meet your needs as a church, because he loves you. And so now I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to say the word we in this prayer because I'm praying for Joan and myself. Joan and I are praying for you. Okay? Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we're glad to be here. We're glad to come here. We're pleased to be present here. We thank you, Lord, that this is a good place. And we now pray for you, Joan and myself. We pray for you as individuals. Wherever your need, wherever you're at, Jesus looks, he knows, he loves, he affirms, he draws you closer to him. And he's saying, come on, follow me. We'll get things sorted. And he's loving you. He's loving you. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father will minister to you individually in this moment, throughout this day and in the coming days. 
And hear this as a church. Jesus knows your needs. He knows your history. Joan and I pray now for you as a church. Lord, we pray. Lord, at the annual meeting now, may the people of your choice be elected. Whoever they are, anoint them in their work. We give thanks for those who've served you in these past years. And Lord, we pray, bring here Jesus, the person of your choice to love your people and to make you known more and more to them. May they be able to receive the love of your people. May they be teachable by your people as they teach your people. May they know you, Lord, deeply. And may they have a heart, not just for your church, but the people of this parish. And we thank you, Jesus, just like Prince William, you sit and you listen to us. Thank you, Lord.